All right, and hello there. Good day, everybody. I'm hoping everyone can hear me okay. Everything looks good here. Uh, welcome, and thank you for joining me for another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. Uh, this is a stream series where I am sharing with you all Dungeons & Dragons homebrew world storyline and campaign that I have been running and writing for a little over 33 years. Uh, so it is my pleasure to get to share it, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. Hello, MT and Miss Ashley White. Thank you for showing up today. Um, as usual, we're going to begin with just a brief recap of where we left off, um, and then we'll be moving right into the story. Today's story will find us Back with Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen. And uh, excited to get further into that story. Um, we've been dealing with artist Petal, Maeve, Bran, and Kip for a while now in the Kingdom of Caradon. We're going to give them a little bit of a break while we advance Seraph and Friends section of uh, I'm hoping uh, you all enjoy this because night will be the beginning of an escalation story. A lot of things have happened since I began this telling this chapter of the Merge World Saga. West for Dina, bring her home. And. <clears throat> There's been some exciting moments, some interesting things, fun stuff popping up here and there, battles and such, but uh, there's been a whole lot of setup and building and showing off more of merged worlds and, and, and growing it more than just the southern kingdoms. I mean, regular main heroes have traveled all over the world to pockets, but uh, I really wanted to show more of merged worlds because more of the world is becoming involved in current situations and will continue to do so so do that and really do a lot of setup and allow some of these characters to start to come into their own now that i have done that i've reached a point in both groups where i can start delving a little bit deeper into the character development giving them a little bit more time to shine each and every one and I uh, am a firm believer in the best way to do that is allowing the proverbial shit to hit the fan. So have, uh, have some fun tonight, hopefully. I'm not quite sure how long tonight's episode will go. We've been averaging between one and a half-ish to two hours lately. One and a half is really where the, the sweet spot I'm shooting for, but if we run a little long, that's fine. If we run a little short, that's okay, too. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you have questions, comments, please remember you can throw those in the chat as well. Um, and of course, these episodes are also available on uh, as an audio podcast for free on all your different uh, setups there. Available on iTunes, Spotify, as well as now Amazon um, Music and Podcasts. So if you have an Amazon Music account, uh, Merge Worlds is now available there. Uh, if you have one, both, or all of those, it would be awesome if you'd consider giving Merge Worlds a follow. Um, 
Uh, a rating would be great too. And if you want to do any of that ratings and the, all the stars and the thumbs up or whatever it is on each one, I'm still learning what each one does. Um, that really does help the podcast out. Not in a month. I don't make any money off this. It's not what this is for. It's Merge Worlds is a very important part of my life and has been for the vast majority of my life. And I just want to share it with as many people as possible. And uh, the more activity those streams and podcasts get on those, uh, same as here on YouTube, with likes and follows and such, uh, the more activity those get, the more iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon will recommend that to other people. And I just want to get in front of eyes and ears as possible. Um, as a brief aside, if you've not yet had an opportunity, today is at the time of recording Thursday, July the 21st, and the release of the first full trailer for the new Dungeons & Dragons movie was released today. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. Not right now. Wait till we're done. It's an audio podcast, and then pause it. Go listen to it, and then come back. I'll wait. Welcome back. If you were here the whole time, you just looked at me for a second, and I was being silly. Uh, but you check it afterwards. Yeah, uh, It actually looks really, really good. Um, Dungeons & Dragons does not have the best history of putting out quality movies and TV shows, so uh, there's some uh, celebrities in this one. It looks pretty good. And any trailer that shows multiple classic D&D monsters and creatures um, that have never before been seen in a D&D movie or TV makes me very excited. So I'm stoked to see it. should totally check that out. All right, so let's talk about where we are and what we're doing, okay? Deacon, Seraph, and Mugen had once again followed Dina's trail. Tom Hanks' one was great. Well, that's not quite a Dungeons Dragons. Well, I guess it really was. Mazes and Monsters was a very good movie, and it was the movie uh, that largely gave Dungeons Dragons its bad name back in the 70s and uh, got a lot of people in trouble. Still a good movie. You should check it out. Um, they had been following Dina, aware that she had gone towards this large city, but that she was being chased by a large group of Oromanians that had been dropped off by ship and were chasing after her. They chased after the Oromanians, but did not manage to overtake them before getting to the city. Entering into the city, uh, again, I want to point out, this is a large city. Uh, this is a Paxawal-sized city, which, again, is still the largest city in the Southern Kingdoms, not counting the Elven Kingdom of Santriel, which is land-wise, because that's a kingdom more than a city. I want to stress that. It's massive, and there's no other part of the Southern Kingdoms that even comes a tiny bit close to matching the size of Santriel. The Elves have a lot of land that they claim. Um, but it's still one of the biggest cities, rivaling even some of the Elven cities. So it's very, very large, and it's ruled by a king loosely, but it's more run by a group of seven senators. Uh, the city itself is sectioned into seven what are known as boroughs, and these boroughs have names, um, but these names are also more anything associated with certain colors. It's quite common to see someone walking around wearing a sash or something that uh, denotes the borough that they are from. Um, there is some hostility between these boroughs. Each borough has the senator. A senator technically rules over like a kind of like a noble, if you will. 
Um, but there's been history, a lot of combat fighting in, in between. Uh, so the city is one of those cities that's always on edge. And even in our own world, if you go to a city where there's a large amount of say, gang activity or things of that nature or, or hostilities between several groups, uh, you'll know that sometimes it feels like you're walking on that nice edge because at any moment, waiting for that pin to drop and for everything to just kind of explode. And so there's a very much feel of that to this city. Um, even when you're you know, sitting in a restaurant and you just a restaurant, an inn, a bar, whatever, and you're chatting with folks, you know, someone comes in wearing a different color than the borough you're in, side looks, thoughts, murmurs, you know, there's definitely some stuff there. And that's not to say that everybody hates everybody. I mean, you could have family in another borough and you still be completely friendly with them. And some people, for, for, for many of the people in the city, it's the equivalent of a sports team. I'm a big fan of them. They're a big fan of them. We're proud of our area. They're proud of their people, their area. Um, but there's also a very large underlying group that to them, it, it, it means much, much more. A uh, matter of pride. So they arrived and, oh, hey, Buffy, I haven't seen you all day. They arrived and began to look around. Uh, they did go to a temple and speak. It's a small temple, surprisingly small for a city this side. Um, and by the way, the name of the city is Medrinol. I should remind you of that. Hi, Buffy. Hi, Buffy's got his guy. Come here. One second, guys. Come here. Krusty's in the back. Here you go. Um, uh, they spoke with a cleric um, and in the temple who was a cleric of knowledge. Uh, they were looking for someone that they could reach out to that would uh, may be able to assist them because they don't want to draw attention to the fact that they're looking for the Oromanians who they believe are in this city looking for Dina as well. If Dina's even still here, again, is she still here? She already moved on to the next link in that chain that's been designed to keep her protected. Um, or is she still here and, and, and under danger? Are they all gone and they're running behind? So they're, they're in a rough spot. They're trying to find out information without giving too much on themselves. And so uh, they, um, they sought out the, the clerics thinking, hey, Seraph's mom's a cleric, and it was a good opportunity to um, get maybe some help from, uh, from a friendly face, if you will. Buffy is staring at me because she wants treats. I'm just texting my wife real quick. Um, so they spoke with the cleric. Um, and let me give you the specifics here. Uh, the cleric they spoke with, as I mentioned, was a uh, cleric of knowledge. It's Temple of the Light, but the head priest is Arena Cleric of Knowledge. Um, and she said that, you know, taking the information and learning that a large group of Pandora... Pandora uh, loyalists here is not what any good or neutral cleric really wants to hear. Pandora is nothing but trouble. In fact, of all the gods, she is probably one of the worst ones to deal with, even though there's some that are darker and more evil. Uh, she is one of the ones to be more actively causing problems, and always has been. Um, she's the brat of the, of the gods, if you will. Um, in some ways, Loki-ish, but without the fun stuff. So they uh, they got help, and they said they would help and see what they could do. They made their way to what is known as one of the lords, if you will, the, the minor uh, gang leaders of one of the boroughs. Uh, they, were, they were led to them and, and spoke with him. 
uh, about getting some help as well. And he wasn't very um, positive to their, or, or, or accepting of, of their requests. Um, but uh, a little bit of a fight broke out there and seeing how skilled Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen were, uh, decided that they may be of benefit to him. Um, and he's quite open about that. He's like, listen, maybe we can help each other. I have contacts. I, if a group of the size you're saying just walked in here, a group of 20 Oromanians searching or openly seeking out some woman who they had lied and said, uh, Deacon had lied and said it was his sister, um, trying to be, the well, Lord was trying to forcefully marry her and he was trying to get her and help her protect her and run away from all that. Didn't give the truth, of course. Because um, these people didn't know what Oramon was. They don't know what Serenity is. They're far enough away now that most of these people, if they've heard any of those names, are just faint whispers that have had no effect on their lives. They're very far away from home. And so um, he said, I'll make you a deal. I don't know if these people are here or not. Maybe, like you said, they snuck in one or two at a time. I will use my contacts and all the power I have to try to find her to help you get there first. If you do me a favor, said one of the burrows, Fire Tongue Burrow, which is the red burrow, um, is currently the most powerful of the burrows. And in gen over generations, that can sometimes change due to certain things. But at least for a very long time, the red burrow has been uh, the biggest and strongest um, and a little bit pricks about it. Uh, they're, they're a little bit cocky as well. And he said it would benefit him and his borough a lot if they could be knocked down a peg or two. He said that one thing that goes on during the Red Burrow is in the Red Burrow is that uh, they do like arena fighting, or anyone's invited, including people from other boroughs, to come and fight. And um, you know they historically have quite the history of winning. But if Seraph, Deacon and Mugen, who clearly have some some skills. Uh, could go in and maybe join into these fights, fight their way up and uh, defeat you know, a bunch of the red people, or including the red champion, a man named Jarek. If you could defeat them, uh, that would definitely knock the red burrow down a peg or two. Do that, they'd help. He'd help them. Everybody like, well, we really didn't come here to just fight people we don't know. And the guy's like, I understand. I understand. And he goes, tell you what, the fights are tomorrow. Just go. Just go and watch. I promise you, this Jarrett guy is a complete filth. Watch just a little bit. I think you'll be inspired to step in and see that uh, doing what I'm asking uh, is a small price to pay um, for, what, for what I can do for you. So they leave and they're like, well... We don't have a lot of other options. It's tomorrow. Let's spend the rest of today seeing if we can find any other options. But we don't have a lot. Worst case scenario, we can go tomorrow and we can look. Doesn't mean we're agreeing, you know, but we can at least go and see what's going on and make a decision at that time. They go off into the city. And where we ended with these guys was as they did so, a uh, man in the shadows pulled the hood up over his head to help hide his long white hair. Hence, maybe, obviously, hopefully everybody should know. Um, smiled and just made the comment to himself, finally, now we can begin. Moot made his way back into the shadows. Someone 
is watching them, clearly. It's a, no illusions here. Someone is specifically watching them and uh, was talking about them. They say, finally, we can. Okay? That's kind of where we left off. So, um, I've got a good chunk of reading to get us started today. I've done a lot of writing this week. I This, this section we're stepping into now, um, I've had written in my head for a very long time. The overall storyline I have, but many of the beats and the little bits that have been going on in the story pop up as we move along. Hello there, Terry. And hello, Michael. I saw your comment earlier, but I'm sorry I didn't say hi. Um, the, uh, the, the story overall, what connects these story beats, I'm writing and coming up with some of that as we move along and some of the characters and NPCs and people they run into. Uh, but there are certain story beats I've known for a long time, and the chunk where this stuff we're going into now is something I've been prepared for a very long time. We'll begin with a little bit of reading. Okay? Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen made their way through the city towards the Fire Tongue or Red Burrow. Their search the day before had been without success, so they had no choice but to accept Laszlo's offer offer and look into participating in the fights held in that red section. Putting themselves out so publicly brought great risk of discovery, especially since Seraph held the best chance to win in a situation like this. Right? So Seraph with his strength and his speed in most one-on-one -on -one combats against most regular mortal races, humans, elves, even an ogre, Seraph is not going to have a lot of problems defeating. I mean, there's some really trained people out there, like really good fighters. Really don't expect to find many of them in a place like this. You know, hardcore mercenaries, assassins, or people who are just hardcore and know how to fight for a living normally aren't going to be doing something in this situation. Guaranteed. But in a regular one-on-one -on -one fight, he's the most likely to be victorious. Um, Mugen could be, and Mugen's had very little chance to, to really get into combat since they've been hanging out together uh, all this time. Although, in the few situations he has, uh, he has exceeded any expectation they may have had of what he was capable of. Um, but one-on-one -on -one in an arena-type situation, whether they'd even let a gully, half-gully, half-norm fight anyways, is its own thing. And then Deacon, who's very trained and very experienced in combat himself, knows how to fight while combining his magic. And it's very likely that using magic in a format like this would not be something that's allowed or would be shunned upon. Um, and so without using that, the one thing he has that kind of sets him above and beyond uh, the average fighter uh, would limit him. So Seraph just naturally, as is, if he took off all of his armor and took away all of his weapons just in a fist fight, Seraph is most likely going to be able to take out one to a small group of people in combat. At the same time, Seraph is very easy to recognize. Long, flowy white hair, right? Very pale skin. Even when his fangs are retracted, he's still got a little bit of fang going on there. Just a little bit. And, is, and you know, I mean, he just has the look of a very pale elf. And some people, worldly people, might even see him, especially they saw him at night in an alley, might say, hey, that looks like a vampire. Um, him walking around in the daytime, most people aren't even normally going to come up with that because what vampire can walk around in the daytime, right? Um, but really, in, in the right situation, he could easily be immediately saying, oh, that's a vampire. Fangs, long white hair, very pale, unnaturally fast and strong, can climb walls with his finger. I mean, all the basic stuff you'd expect from a vampire. 
So Sarah steps into the ring. He's capable, but he's going to stand out. If there are people looking for Dina, people who might know about him, um, that could also bring unwanted attention to them as well. It's one of those things that they're having to weigh as they're moving into this, considering whether they wish to participate. Um, let's see. Still, with no other leads, they needed whatever help they could get, and this was the only help that was currently on the table. The Red Borough was bustling, and the streets were packed, so movement was slow. By the time they reached the arena, the fights were already underway. It could barely be called an arena, honestly. It was really just an open area that bowed at the center, bowled at the center, and many rows of crudely made benches, benches lined it on all sides, giving it the appearance of a poorly made outdoor theater. These benches were now filled with yelling and cheering watchers of the event. Crudely carved stairs separated these bleachers and led down to the busy streets to, uh, to the fights below, from the busy street to the fight below. So I want to I go into detail this because this is important, right? So imagine if in the middle of a city, right? And you picture your classic medieval Dungeon Dragons type city, right? Buildings aren't all in even rows. They're all jumbled roads going all over the place, paths up and down hills. No city's flat, right? But you get to this point where all of a sudden these buildings, there's just a big circle with an open clearing, right? So imagine there's just a big round park in the middle of this, a good size round park in the middle of this borough. But instead of a flat area, it bows very deeply to the center. And being good sized, it can go relatively deep. You look like you're standing at the top of a very high stairs when you come out of one of the streets or entrances to get there. Um, going down, there's been just curved into the dirt and rock, just rough, kind of like amphitheater seating with these crude benches on them and going down between the benches on all sides, because again, it's rounded, Right? Are these stairs coming down from low? And they're not all at the same height because the city is not completely flat, right? So across the way, the stairs may be higher than where they are over here. Uh, but it's just this big rounded area, hundreds of people on these benches and people going up and down these stairs to get in and out and so on and so forth. And you can imagine there's probably some vendors trying to hawk ware, foods, drinks, you know, that kind of thing. Just like you expect a sporting game now, even back there at that type of thing, people would be walking around trying to sell foods and drinks and ales and things. Um, down in the center, a large raised fighting ring stood, its size closed in by fences. It would seem that any who entered would be trapped inside until the fight ended. Now, I say fences in the classic chain style uh, that, that, that we're more used to. It's not like a wooden slats, okay? There's this, this thing is mostly stone. It's probably built of stone and such and you know, paved or carved as well as they can with mortar and stuff to make it solid. Probably some type of mat or heavy thick cloth over it probably leathers or some type of hides that are stretched out over it's a very large ring it's not perfectly rounded it's not square either it's just octagony whatever you're looking at and there'll be metal poles fastened to it coming out of it with metal chain fence going around it um with the holes being no uh, the fence being no bigger than this so not quite the small regular fence we're used to of uh, you know usually just a couple inches in width would be the the holes between the links um, but you might be able to put part of your arm through, or if you're small, up to your shoulder. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to climb in or out of it, even someone small like Mugen. It's, it's definitely meant to contain people inside um, until the fight is over. No running away once you agree to go inside. Um, here we go. Currently inside, two men fought. One was a huge bear of a man, well-muscled and bearing many scars. 
Even without the cheers of the crowd, they knew that this was Jarek, the man they'd come to find. So, you know, people are cheering for him. Not everybody, but some people are cheering for him. Okay? So, Jarek is the champion of this. That's why he's kind of the target. We'll get in the fights, work your way up. If you can get to him and defeat him, it's going to knock these people down a peg. Um, now, I, I touched on this a moment ago, but again, the audience, well, there's a large, I would even say, thirds of them, maybe a little less, uh, are clearly of red, right? They got the red sashes on or a banner or red rag, whatever. They've got something on that shows that they're a part of this borough. But throughout um, the seating area, mixed throughout, not specifically in one area, but mixed throughout are patches you could see in groups of others wearing other colors, right? Because for the red group, this is a chance for them to show their superiority, but it's also a way to make money. And you can imagine a situation like this, gambling runs rampant. And that's really who's running up and down the stairs and through the rows, people taking and making bets over the certain fights and things. So anyone could come here to make money, and anyone is welcome to join the fights, burrowed or not. So if you're an outsider like Seraph and Deacon and Mugen, and they wanted to try to make some money, because there is prize money if you can win fights on your way up, if you win certain fights, get up to the champion and you win, there's some serious bank involved. Um, so some people might come here to try to make money or try to earn some money depending on their situation. Now, the other man that was in the ring was losing, clearly. His eyes were nearly swollen shut and his nose looked broken. His body was badly bruised. Seraph and Deacon could see that Jarek was just toying with the man, prolonging the fight to hurt the man as much as possible. The crowd, overall, seemed to be enjoying the show. And again, I say overall because some people may have voted on the other guy or, or, or bet on the other guy. Some people may know him. That other guy might be a member of another borough, which is in fact the case in this situation. Um, and he happens to be wearing a sash of the Greenboro borough that they actually just recently came from. So people in the, some people in the audience are not going to be happy about this. Even people who aren't part of Greenboro may not be happy, right? Blue and red and whatever. They are not, I mean, not red, but anybody who's not red, again, would like to see red fail. Red's the biggest one right now. And nobody who's not red is really happy with that. Everybody wants their borough to be the strongest. Um, but again, overall, even the ones that may not be losing still seem to be enjoying the fights as a whole. Now, Mugen looked at everything around him in confusion. He'd never seen anything like this. Why would the two men in the cage be hurting each other so? And why did the crowd seem to like it? After a couple minutes, the second man finally fell to the ground. Jarek goaded him to rise, but the man lay bleeding on the mat. Finally, after a kick and no response, Jarek waved his hand dismissively at the man and then raised his hands towards the crowd, turning in victory. And this, of course, brought cheers from the majority of the crowd. Another man stepped up and unlocked the door to the cage, and Jarek stepped out. Two other men quickly rushed in and began to drag the second man out of the ring. Seraph could not tell if he still lived, but even from the top of the stairs where they still stood, Seraph could smell he'd lost a lot of blood. Because Seraph can smell that kind of stuff, right? 
So they're still, they've, they've come in, they're kind of at the top of the stairs, they haven't made their way down, way down beneath them, they can see this fight. It's at a distance, but it's not like a football stadium, it's not that far down, but it's still a good ways. They can still see the details, and they're, they're kind of taking everything in. Maybe they've taken a few steps down the stairs, and the stairs aren't all straight, maybe stairs and a little bit of a landing in stairs, because this is, again, carved out of the earth and natural formation, it's not perfect by now. As Jarek made his way to a chair near the ring, a man appeared from around the other side. He held a heavy chain and struggled to control the beast at its end. It resembled a log, large dog-like creature, though it had no hair and was scaled instead. It had two long rat-like tails, and its long tongue was forked. Seraph and his friends had never seen any beast like that. Hello, dragon. Jarek took the chain easily and pulled the beast to him. As he, sat, as he sat down, the dog thing sat next to him, and it was clear the beast was some type of pet. A well-dressed man, dressed all in red, stepped up and addressed the crowd, clearly an announcer. Another victim for the champion. That's two victories in one day, and he seems he isn't even winded. The crowd roared again, and Jarek laughed, taking a large drink from a large pint of beer that had been brought to him. So, again, a crowd favorite, definitely for the Reds, and maybe even some folks who haven't, because anybody can vote on them, right? Some people still might have made a little bit of money, but you know how it is. When you, when you vote on the obvious favorite to win, you're not usually going to make that much money, right? So, you know, shooting on long shots, you, know, you have a bigger risk of losing your cash. You also have the greater chance of so this is all going on, right? Announcer down there, he doesn't have like a megaphone. He's just yelling. So when he gets up and raises his hands, begin to speak, the crowd mostly hushes because they want to hear what this man has to say. He's probably the one who's going to announce the next fighter or the next match or the next ring. Seraph and them hadn't really found out a lot about how the hierarchy worked, only that you could join and fight and work your way up. Um, never being there before, they assumed they would have to start at the bottom rung and have to work their way up. And many people after a fight or two, would need to rest. Maybe come back the next week, take on more challengers. They didn't have that kind of time. So Seraph did enter into this combat situation. If he does decide to enter into this, he's going to try to get to the top today. That's a lot of strain on him. And again, successful, the more successful he is, the more that's going to stand out. Because the regular guy is going to have a hard time fighting three, five, seven, however many it's going to take for him to finally get up to the champion. And then if he wins, people are going to start maybe having some questions as well, right? Like, how is that possible? How's this skinny little extra pale albino elf fight seven, five, four, maybe even three, however many it's going to have to be. How is that going to be possible that he was successful to do all that and then step in there with a clear champion who was just stomping the floor with anybody who manages to make it to him and win? These are things that Seraph Deacon and Mugen had discussed the night before. They talked about this. These are things they're going to have to be able to address. They only had the weakest of cover stories at this point, coming up with what they can. They hadn't had a lot of time to plan for this. It was not part of their original thought process when they came to the city, like, oh, we're going to have to have this. They had the pre-cover story that Dina was Deacon's sister, so, you know, both human and such, and that, uh, you know, they're come to try to save her. She, was, she ran away or whatever. Um, they had that prep, so they were ready with that. This, it's hard to say that 
is the reason why you stepped into the fights, you know? So it puts them in a little bit harder spot to handle. But the man says a few things and talks about them and, and says that uh, there are more fights lined up for the day and so on and so forth. And um, not that he needs a rest, but he'll have an opportunity because we have some more things that are, some more fights are going to happen. He names some names and talks about things that serve them. And they start looking around. Maybe we can find a place to sit or is there a place where we sign up because they're looking for that, right? Does he say, does anybody want to fight? Or, you know, they're waiting to kind of get a hint of what that next step is. The man in red finally continued, though, in a slightly different way. Hello, Quinn. But before we open up for new challengers, there is another matter that must be dealt with. Dang, this thing. A little bit of murmur comes from the crowd. This is unusual. Another matter? We came here for fights. What matter are you talking about? We don't, this isn't the place for stuff. We come here to watch people beat each other up and bet on it. The man continues. Last night, thieves, thieves, I tell you, tried to steal from us, tried to take food and items from the flame tongue, steal from the red burrow. Imagine a large amount of boos and jeers coming from the audience at this point, especially the red. No, you don't steal from us kind of thing. But even still, even without that, even some of the other boroughs are like, well, we're not a fan of thieves stealing from you. Sure, they took it from the red borough. Screw the red borough. But still, we're not a big fan of criminals because who knows, they might steal from us next, right? They don't know who they are at this point. Like, oh, well, is it one of our people? If so, this is a problem. If it's not one of our people, well, that's one less people person to steal from our borough in the future. Right? That's the mentality you're seeing from a lot of these people. You don't see a lot of kids and stuff here. There's probably a few, but it's, it's, it's not really the place or even there really is invited. God booed and jeered the man's news. But I have good news, my friend. The man continued. We caught them red-handed. And now they will be brought to face Burrow, just. The crowd cheered again, not as loudly. Throughout the crowd, Seraph could see that some people were clearly nervous and uncomfortable with the news. While most seemed to be wearing, again, as I mentioned, the colors of the other boroughs, um, most of the people who seemed unhappy were folks wearing other colors. Even some of the red, those who were red, seemed a little nervous about what they were hearing. Right? Borough justice. Well, it doesn't matter how loyal you are to your group that you belong to. When they start dealing out their own justice without any type of proper trial or justification, how long, how long is it before you might accidentally stumble into this? What if some perceived offense uh, is, he puts you in the crosshairs and now you're forced to face borough justice instead of being given the justice promised by the king and the law of your city and not everybody's against, is, is for that type of thing. The announcer called out, and three men in chains were dragged out towards the ring. Three very small men. Seraph and Deacon looked at each other in horror before looking down at their small friend. Mugen just stood there silent, his eyes wide, 
watching the scene below. The three gully dwarf men were forced down to the ring. Once there, their chains were removed and they were forced inside of the ring. Or closed behind them. The little men ran about, looking for a way to escape the cage, but it was well made. As I mentioned, it's fencing far too small for any of them to fit through. Imagine. Expected. But at the same time, Lazlo had said to them, just go and watch. I don't think you're going to have a problem being involved with this once you see the type of people, especially the type of person, Jarek is. Jarek stood and walked to the announcer. Standing next to him said, Let this be a warning and a reminder to any who would try to cheat or steal the greatest of all burrows, fire tongue. People the cheering again, not quite as loud. Still some, especially more from the red side. In that side, it might be more of a cheering for yay, we're red. A lot more nervousness of what exactly is going on. One of the other men standing there opened the door to the arena. Jarek reached down and grabbed his dog creature by the spiked collar around its neck, forcing him to the door and unhooking the chain. And after unhooking it, the beast dashed inside of the cage. Gods, no, Seraph whispered, and the gullies screamed in fear. Everything seemed to happen all at once. The dog-like beast ran towards the gullies, who screamed, tried to flee from it, though there was no place for them to go. Jarek slammed the door closed and locked it, laughing. The crowd burst into noise, half jeers, but very clearly half boos of displeasure and anger. Deacon began summoning the words of a spell. At, at this point, immediately, he's like, well, he just immediately starts pulling in what he needs to cast a spell. This is not okay. And, uh, and every muscle in Seraph's body tensed as he prepared to burst forward as quickly as he could, hoping he can move. I mean, he's fast. Has to hope he's fast enough. All of these things happened in the same moment, in an instant. And all of them came to a stop instantly, ended by the same sound. There was a loud echoing pop like a crack of thunder. One instant the dog was about to bite into the flesh of the closest gully, and the next second the beast's head exploded into a mess of bone, blood, and gore shrapnel. Both Seraph and Deacon each jumped away, startled by the sound, originated from between them, as the entire crowd grew silent 
and looked their way. They looked to their little friend standing between them. Mugen stood there, arm outstretched, smoke still wafting from the end of his pistol. Jarek, seeing his pet's lifeless body fall to the floor of the ring, howled in anger. Searching the crowd, he saw the three men standing up near the top of the stairs and could see the entire crowd staring at them, focusing on them. Clearly kind of point out where that came from, what happened. What type of magic is this? That would be the first thing. He's standing there holding out his pistol, but is it a crossbow? I mean, what kind of crossbow does that to a head? What a shot, by the way. You, he screamed, pointing. I'll kill you. I'll tear you apart. He's very upset. Giant reached down and grabbed a long piece of heavy metal on the ground nearby, most likely a piece from the arena's construction, then began making his way towards the stairs. Seraph reached for his sword, but was stopped by Mugen's words. No, Seraph the little man said. Seraph stared as Mugen casually removed his cloak, letting it fall to the ground behind him. With one single fluid movement, he reached back in behind him and drew forth the warhammer that was strapped there. Mugen looked up at Seraph. The little, gu little gully's voice was... The little gully's face was devoid of emotion. When he spoke, his voice was little more than a whisper. I got this. I got this, is all that he said. Jarek had reached the bottom of the stairs, and Mugen began to descend them towards him. The reading intro part. So again, these are relatively high stairs. It's not a short distance, but Jarek has grabbed this big, heavy piece of metal, like a pole or pipe type kind of thing. Probably one of the fence poles that was help holding up the stuff around, or at least a piece of it. Probably jagging on one. Maybe maybe during a fight, one of the poles actually got snapped by somebody's body being thrown against it or something. Replaced it, just throwing the broken pieces on the ground next to it. You know, not the cleanest, most organized area. It's very stinky. Mugen is making his way down the stairs towards him. Seraph and Deacon are, what do we do? They look at each other and they look at Mugen. But they have to respect their friend's wishes. And they all they can do is stand there and watch. Not happy about it. But at the same time, nodding at each other, preparing to step in should the need be. Right? He can still summon in words to the spells in his head. Seraph is ready to burst forward should he need to. They're not going to let their friend get killed. They'll let him do what he needs to first. Jarek quickly starts rushing up the stairs, and as Mugen is making way down his stairs towards him, he starts picking up speed as well. And while Jarek's big legs allow him to take several stairs at a time, Sir Mugen's going downhill, so he's picking up speed momentum as well. Definitely, they're closer to Seraph and Deacon when the two meet, because Jarek's going to come up the stairs way faster than Seraph's going to come down. 
but they do still meet on the stairs. And the stairs themselves are probably four to five feet wide. It's a decent space, enough room for two to three people to go up and down um, where they're at. It's not perfectly. Some of the Sometimes the benches stick out a little bit in areas. It's Again, it's not super fancy professionally made, and benches probably wear and break and snap over time. They slap another one in there that they can fit in. It's, it's not high-quality, comfortable places to sit. But as the two warriors finally meet each other at the stairs, Jarek quickly brings the pole down, attempting to just crush Mugen where he stands. Jarek is not an untrained fighter. He's got good aim. Mugen has his hammer up as well, but it doesn't swing doesn't attack or even attempt to parry. Instead, he actually uses his momentum to kind of fall backwards and, and slide down the stairs some, which can't feel good, right? These are dirt and rock, not stone or steel, but it's still going to hurt. It's going to rub skin right off his back, and the little guy does not wear much in the way of a shirt. We've seen what he looks like. But he manages to slide down and clearly right down and through the large man's legs. As he does, he comes up on one knee and spins as fast as he can. Jarek, missing, pulls the pull up and starts to turn. But before he can, Mugen, with all of his weight, brings that hammer clear against the side of his thigh, just above his knee. The man, who's also not heavily, just very barbarian-like, heavily clothed, you could just see the flesh and muscle ripple the strength of the blow. Jarek cries out unexpectedly at the pain stumbles a bit to the side. And at that point, the two enter into what would be melee combat. So, from a story point of view and a D&D point of view, I'm going to cover both of them. Okay? So, as they go in to fight, they have limited space, right? There's a crowd around them on two sides. And while there's, like I said, the occasional landing going down the stairs, these guys are fighting on stairs that are not even or evenly smooth or well-made, right? We talked about that. It may may be weak. Part of it may crumble under their feet, especially someone who weighs as big as Jarek is. I'm sorry I keep rubbing my nose. I've got a mustache hair that keeps curling up and tickling my nostril. I promise I'm not digging for gold in there. (laughs) I'm just trying to pull it down. If you're looking at me weird in the video, I apologize. Um... But they're, you know, they're fighting in this very limited space. This is one of multiple things that works in Mugen's benefit, right? The smaller, the space is larger to him. He's got more room to move around than Jarek does, who is an abnormally large man. Now, I say he's maybe got some ancestry uh, ogre blood in there at some point. Not like he's half ogre, but back in the family line, there might be some. He's a very big, bulky kind of man right? Not just all muscle. He's got kind of the belly on him, the girth, what you expect from some of the real big street fighters you may have seen out there. He's got a lot of muscle and stuff on him. He's also a big man, and he's not as fast as some others would be. What what he makes up for in that is a his strength uh, and B, durability. He can take a, a beating, which is apparent by the amount of wounds and scars left over that are all over him. He's definitely taken beatings before. Probably not just in an arena, but in other combat situations. The fight itself very quickly evens out. 
right? Because not only does he have that limited space, Jared, what he's wielding isn't technically a weapon, right? Man's probably trained in weapons and can use a, a big metal pole, but it's not exactly a weapon. Not going to handle quite the same way. And on top of that, he's furious. He's enraged at this point. So, unlike someone who's in a fight who normally he's in control of the fight because fighting someone much weaker himself, which in this situation still is true, the rage is causing him to act slightly more uh, sporadic than he normally would. And then the biggest perk that Mugen has going for him in a combat like this, and this is a common sense thing as well as a D&D thing, is the fact that Mugen is so small. From a Dungeons & Dragons side of point of view, someone who is overly large, greater than Mansong, who's fighting someone who is extremely small, uh, the large person gets a negative. It's hard to hit somebody that small who are historically rather quick. I mean, very often the smaller races are not only just quick, but they're agile. That would be fighting a regular gully dwarf you just pulled off the street, one of the ones in the ring. Mugen is far from that. First of all, he's half gnome. That gives him another step above that itself. And the man is pure muscle. He's been trained by his father, again, an incredibly talented warrior skilled warrior to fight from the day he could pick up a weapon and his father's not an idiot his father knew one day Mugen may be out there in the world so he taught him to fight things bigger than him because Fig had to do that his whole life I think I might have called him Mugen but his father's name's Fig if I said the wrong name there I apologize Fig his father an incredibly trained warrior um Fig spent his whole life fighting things bigger than him and usually way bigger than him you're here for the early days of Merge Worlds, you'll remember some of those fights. Lord, that never slowed Fig down at all. Moog, it would seem, has neither the uh, common sense nor concern to step into combat with something drastically bigger than himself. So at first, Jarek is just more trying to just smack or swipe or hit Mugen with this pole. That's his primary thing. He's just trying to squish him. And while he's flailing around, at least once or twice, he's smacking somebody in the audience who happens to be a little bit too close. Right? Because they're right. There's people on both sides of them. The big guy with the big reach carrying a big pole. He swings and he misses. He might rip the chin off of somebody over there. At least do some serious damage. But several people in the audience get hit in the middle of this as well. Mugen is more moving than anything else. He's being careful to time his blows and his hits. And when he does make a swing, does make a hit, he's targeting the same areas. Not trying to go for the groin, which everyone would assume, and which, to be honest, in most fights, people are smart enough to watch for that. Watch movies and TV shows, and, oh, we got that one good punch in the ball. Anybody in a real fight is watching for that type of cheap shot. You're prepared for it, especially if you're a trained fighter. Someone like Jarek, who's fought against people he's taken out multiple times, would be watching for someone to try to make that last-dish effort to punch it. So he's watching for that type of thing. Mugen's not doing that. He's working him in the legs, attacking feet, ankles, knees, thighs, shins. Just He's doing it because, A, he's going for the things that he can reach without overextending himself. Sure, a warhammer in the head is going to do a lot of damage, probably more than it would to the thigh. But the effort it's going to take to try to reach up that high may put Mugen in. Example: I like to use whenever I'm designing 
a D&D fight or a story fight, I like to think back to something I heard a long time ago um, that I can't say 100% sure, but in a martial arts class I took, and it was a sensei I had quoted, said he was quoting Bruce Lee. When we were talking, we were talking about when I was learning, it's like there were no kicks above the stomach in the styles that I learned. When asked, as Bruce Lee was quoted as saying, kicking someone in the head, like punching them in the foot. Energy, strength, loss of balance. What was required in doing that, not to say in the movies he didn't, but in a real comic fight. It was a man with fists. The stuff the man could do with his fists was just insane. And in the time it took him to get his foot up there to kick you in the face, he probably could have punched you two to four to six times if you're Bruce Lee. It's silly to put yourself out there for that. Better to get in more smaller attacks than in the long run are going to be more dangerous. So any a small fighter who's been trained will know to do that as well. Attack what's within reach. Get in multiple smaller hits than try to go for one big cleaving blow. And again, he's using a hammer. It's a little bit harder to do. Blade, you get one good cut. A little bit different. So I'm going into so much detail about the combat today, but we haven't had a big fight. And this is something that gets asked very commonly when I do these. So he's sitting there and he's slamming. And he's finally, Jarek's not having success, which is just making him angrier. And so now not only is he trying to just slam, he starts focusing more on swiping low. Again, Jarek's not an idiot. He's trained. And this begins to have more effect. Mugen is forced to, to, to step back. He can't stay in his close. And at one point, after he manages to score a good hit on the side of Jarek's leg, Jarek steps back himself and swings with a little bit of reckless abandon, hitting not only Mugen, but two more people in the crowd. People in the crowd clearly knocked backwards. One of them knocked unconscious, if not worse. But there was enough strength hitting the three of them that Mugen still took a big brunt of it. And Mugen caught that square in the shoulder, right in the side. He tried to brace himself for it. Jarek is a very strong man. And it hit Mugen hard enough that he fell backwards and rolled down several stairs to the next landing, about six to eight stairs below. Not too far, fortunately. And it banged him up. because he was cut over his eye at this point. He snagged the corner of a rock on the, the edge. So now he's got a little bit of blood flowing down the side of his face as well. But Mugen doesn't appear to be getting angry at this. You know, Mugen's not showing rage, even at the situation and the just despicable thing that was being done to his people. He's maintaining his calm. He's, he's focusing on what needs to be done, doing what he was trained to do. Derek, finally sensing, aha, I got you, starts coming down those stairs with the attempt to do the same. Mugen only goes up one step. That's all he really has the opportunity to take before Jarek is there. Jarek is again trying to swing low down at him, trying to hit him side to side. And audience now are all falling back away from the edges, seeing what's happened up a little bit higher. None of them want hit either. Just giving Jarek a little more room to swing, but I want you to picture this, right? You've got your stairs. Going up on an angle, right? Or going up, obviously. There's one. Mugen is at the bottom, so he's already way lower than Jarek. He's also tiny. At this point, he's barely up to Jarek's knee. If that, Mugen's small. I mean, surprisingly, gnomes and bloodgrubbers are not quite as short as people would think, but they're still short. 
uh, but they're barely coming up to his knee at this height. Even though Jarek is swinging down, swinging on an angle, and he's a girthy guy. So when he's swinging with that pole, his hand can only go so low. And the section of pole closest to his hand is leaving a space underneath. And so Mugen steps in and gets as close as he possibly can. And by doing so, he's really within a reach that Jarek just can't get that pole down. He's going to hit people, he's going to hit the the stairs, he can't snag Mugen that close. And Mugen comes in and brings the hammer down super hard right on Jarek's foot. Now, I'm sure you can imagine, regardless of the size of Mugen, strong person bringing a heavy war hammer down on a relatively unprotective foot have a pretty common response to that. Eric yells out in pain. Because doing that is going to crack, if not crush, several of the bones in your foot. Mugen wasn't aiming quite for the full foot. Aiming for the front of his foot. Part of Jarek's foot that was overhanging the edge of the stairs. Think about that. Stairs are only so big. Jarek's foot's on the stair. Toes in the front part of his foot. Especially if he's reaching down, trying to hit. Hanging off the edge of those stairs. And Mugen brings that hammer down right on the front of the foot. Jarek's foot bends a 90 degree angle down. And the sound of cracking and splintering bones is heard by everyone around. When Jarek screams... He's screaming for a reason. Broken your foot. And a, and a damage of this nature, which I did look into, is extremely painful. The pain and hit is so much that it actually causes Jarek to lose his balance. That's partially what Mugen was going for. Pain, of course, he tried to pull that foot back. He's in pain. He's got this pipe in his hand. He's already overextended from the swing. He starts to lose his balance. While he quickly struggles to try to regain it while dealing with the anguish in his foot, Mugen doesn't let up and raises his hammer again and with every ounce of strength he's got, swings it clear at the side of Jarek's knee. Now this is the knee, the leg that does not have the squished foot. As the hammer hits the knee, again, there's a sickening crunch and pop as Jarek's leg bends. Not forward, but sideways. With enough strength that immediately a piece of the cracked bone rips from the flesh and is protruding out the side of the man's leg. It's too much for anybody. I don't give a damn who you are got a foot that's crushed and a man just busted your leg inward to the side no strength left in his legs Jarek crumbles and hits the ground Mugen it's all he can do to dive to the side actually diving between a couple of the bleachers into the legs of some of the people standing there Jarek falls and hits hard and Jarek is a big roundish kind of guy 
and Jarek proceeds to roll down the the stairs, just straight up falling and bouncing with the momentum enough that he's not able to stop himself. Finally, Jarek reaches the bottom, hits the ground, and still rolls a couple more rolls. Jarek's a fighter, though, in a lot of pain. And he, too, much like, has wounds now all over him, bruises, and he's bleeding from the cuts of falling down probably 20 to 25 stairs at this point. And in the middle of that, that crushed foot and that broken knee are smacking and banging and rolling, maybe even a weight landing on him at the point. The man's legs are just completely screwed. And Jarek struggles to try to lift himself up. Tries to get himself up on at least the one leg that still has a good knee. Tries to, to get up on that one knee. But he never really gets the opportunity. Before he can fully come up, Mugen is there. And Mugen is all around him. Hitting, smacking, and striking the hammer. Shoulders, chest, head, face. Literally, people are just watching Mugen beat the ever-living hell out of Jarek. Jarek, at this point, has reached a point where he's just trying to grab or push or get Mugen away, and he may get a, a small push at one point, but it's not enough to keep Mugen. Mugen just comes right back in and continues to smack on him until finally, with no strength left, he too just falls to the ground. Not Mugen. Jarek falls to the ground in a lump. Little strength he has left, he manages to roll himself back over onto his back. And Mugen is still standing up there. Mugen, he got his own injuries and stuff. He took a few hits in that we talked about, plus falling down the stairs hurt him. He's winded. You can see he's breathing heavy because he just exerted a lot of strength. Jarek just spits at him, and he's cussing and such in a way that it's barely understandable. Mugen looking down at what he's done to this guy, beating the shit out of him. Mugen turns and goes towards back to the stairs towards his friends. Jarek continues to yell, and some of his words become intelligible. I'll find you. No matter how long it takes, I'll find you and I'll kill you. I'll rip your fucking head off. Kill you and every other gully. This damn city. Whatever it takes, I'll kill you all. Mugen stops. Looks back, partially looking down. And through all this, no matter what was going on, he was concentrated. And you didn't see emotion on his face. Calculated. He was doing what he had to do. What he trained his whole life to do. But his shoulders finally slump in a bit of defeat. Mugen turns around and walks back over and looks down at Jarek. And he says, You will never hurt gullies ever again. And he raises up his hammer high over his head and brings it hurtling down the center of Jarek's face. Jarek's head crumples like an egg and the sickening crunch mixed with squish and splort 
sickens anyone around. The sound is disgusting. Smashes him. Clean in the face. And the hammer just goes in all the way. He pulls it out. He raises above his head. Sit down again. 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 Eight times crushes his hammer into what was the head of Jarek until all that's left is a pulpy, goopy mass on the ground in front of him. Mugen is covered in blood and ichor from what he splatter all over him. And he turns with his hammer in his hand and he just scans the audience. And everybody's quiet, just shocked at what they saw. Not only did this little gully guy, because let's be honest, he doesn't look like a regular gully dwarf. Pure muscle, mohawk, dressed cooler, and clearly knows how to fight. Just took out the champion that people twice as, three times his size couldn't do, and did it in such a vicious and savage ending. And Mugen turns, and now his face shows rage, anger, and he just scans the crowd. And this time when he speaks, his voice is, a, is his own roar, is loud. He screams, You never! Hurt gullies ever again. Practically screaming it fanatically once. He'll say it over and over, just loudly. Crowd is stunned. But then there's movement. Beside the ring, coming around the side, the announcer rushes forward from behind Mugen. In his hand, he holds a well-made sword. In the midst of this anger and furiousness that is finally Mugen's allowed to show, he doesn't see it. The announcer pulls back his sword and thrusts forwards, only to have the sword clang to the side. Because as if from nowhere, Seraph is standing there. And he deflected the blow. Seraph reaches and grabs the man by front of his shirt and lifts him in the air. And two screams, never again. And throws the announcer against the table where the beer was and such. And he hits it at an angle where you can hear bones crack and the whole table shatters. One that Jarek was sitting at beer on it. Just hits as the announcer hits the ground. Now the crowd is even more shocked. A, because Seraph just appeared to have almost magically appear there. The dude is very fast. And let's be honest, there wasn't an eye in that place that was not focused on Mugen and then the announcer that people, at least on this side of the arena, could see. They see not only this champion of the red just obliterated. The announcer, probably a very popular man, held that title for a Easily deflected and thrown through the air like a toy, smashing through a heavy wooden table. Going to take some strength. The announcer wasn't that big of a guy. About this time, 20 or 30 men, well-armed, also wearing the sash of red, clearly some security, 
of some kind come out of the streets and come start coming down one set of the stairs towards them. It only takes them a moment to reach the bottom of the stairs. Rushing, and they reach the bottom, they have their weapons drawn as well. These are clearly not city guard, members of the same borough. Um, more likely part of the gangs, which I talked about earlier, that kind of really run these sections. One of the men, of course, I expect, like, you all will pay for that. Right, again, now they're standing with 20 dudes with Mugen and Seraph, right? Now, even after seeing what was done, you could imagine, we're 20 well-armed people. A little more confident in what we can pull off here. You're going to pay for that, and the Reds begin to move forward as if they're going to rush in on Seraph and Mugen. Seraph, of course, has his sword drawn, and Mugen now has his Warhammer prepped, ready to battle as well. And then a man stands in the audience. A man wearing a blue. James, hold on now. That little man beat him fair and square. Big man started it. You ought to leave them boys alone. Shut your mouth, bastard, says another man dressed in a red sash, not far away. He shut his blue mouth. None of your damn business. The Redboro will take care of this how we see fit. There's a man in the audience. Or from that, a man stands up, a large man. Right, green sash. Well, now it's my business. Can't say I'm not glad to see you filthy Reds being knocked down a peg or two. You're nothing but bullies and murderers as it is. I'm just going to stand here and let you murder these boys because they beat your, he calls them some type of slur or name, fair and square. Just because your biggest and strongest couldn't stand up to a little man doesn't mean you get to you know, do this kind of thing. And they start slurring back and forth. A little bit of yelling back and forth. And the, the Reds that were first going to come over it ready to take on Mugen and are now yelling up, you shut down, it's not here. And then just yelling back and forth and other people start popping up and reds pop up or yelling at them. And they're yelling back and forth. And then there's just a, again, kind of like a tense moment where they're all standing there. The large green man I mentioned was standing there. A red man stands up from behind him, pulls out a knife and stabs him right where his neck meets his shoulder. That was the damn busting. Weapons start coming out of everywhere. An entire crowd becomes a mob and melee. And immediately, red versus blue versus green versus purple, weapons come out of and suddenly everyone's fighting. This pent-up anger and aggression that's been going on for a long time. For some, genuinely, do not like the way the gullies were about to be treated. Don't like the way... Mugen and Seraph were about to be treated. And for many, it's just an excuse to crush the Reds, people that they hate and can't stand. And let's be honest, the Reds are powerful. They're the strongest. But for once, you got some blues and greens and other colors kind of teaming up there, kind of on the same side of this, like I talked about this before. Right? The Red's the big one, but, you know, 
maybe a few of us, this is an opportunity to uh, make it so they're not the biggest anymore. And some people, just intelligent people who want that type, are going to see this as an excuse and an opportunity for a couple of the boroughs to justifiably fight against the red. Because let's be honest, somebody just, a red just stabbed a green, right? If a blue attempts in to defend him by killing some reds, well, what's the green? What are the leaders of the green going to say? Well, we don't have a problem with the blue guy. He came to our man's defense. This was the reds who started that. Chance to. That's how some people think. Some people are just like, no. And some people just want to fight. Let's be honest. That's just how this world works. And suddenly, hundreds of people Russian begin a melee, fighting in the stands, pouring down in and fighting into each other, fighting into the stands, going up and down. The stairs begin filling with people trying to make their way in, and many people just trying to get out, right? There's going to be people who don't want to be involved. Especially some of the folks who maybe have families there, women's and children's and such. Although there's some women's out there kicking some serious booty because they're not a fan of Reds either. But the point is, there's some people who are just trying to get out. And it doesn't take but a moment for this to start to spill out the stairs out into the streets of the Red Borough. And by this point, Deacon's made his way down the bottom of the stairs. Let's be honest, he's not quite as fast. Uh, Drago says, I will not. I don't know the story, so I'll come back when I do this stream next. Oh, no problem, Drago. I appreciate it. There's a lot of story there. This is episode 84. Each episode's on average a minimum of two hours. So I'll let you do the math on how many hours of story we're at at this point. But if you get a chance to listen to a couple of the first episodes, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, especially being a Dragonlance fan. Um, I think you'll recognize that definitely they're a heavy influence on my writing style, uh, many of the Dragonlance writers. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you get a chance something you're interested in. Again, available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or you can watch all the videos are here in a playlist as well. But enough of me shilling. Back to the story. <laughs> Fight comes in and Seraph and Deacon immediately, of course, are drawn partially into it as well. Seraph quickly turns and grabs the door of the of the arena and pulls it clear off its hinge and tosses it at a group of red warriors, some of the, those first 20 that were charging at them, sending a bunch of them falling back. And he turns to Mugen and he goes, get your people out. Mugen nods and jumps in and goes to the guys who have been watching at first and just, what is going on? Because you can imagine them like, I don't understand. Why did his head blow up? Pointing at the dog. Why is there a gully up there with a really weird haircut? How did he just kill that big deer? You know, you, now why is everybody fighting? To the average gully, who are historically of low intelligence, they don't understand any of this. And then suddenly the door gets ripped off and Mugen steps in. Mugen, who looks wild by any gully's concept or standard. Who's covered in blood and guts, brain matter, still holding the hammer dripping that he used to crush Jarek, and he steps inside, and they're all cowering back now, like, don't hurt us, don't hurt us. And he comes up, and he goes, come with me. Take you somewhere safe. He was like, why you help us? One of them yells, the only thing they can get out. Mugen smiles, he goes, you're my people. That's my job. Come. We get you to safety. 
Gullies are confused, but your only chance to get out of here. And looking at the massive combat going on all around them, I'll be honest, right now inside that cage, probably the safest place in the entire arena. But for how long? These guys aren't idiots. They're idiots, but they're not idiots. They have survival instincts, if you know what I mean. And so they very quickly take one of them, grabs Mugen's hands, and the other ones start to rush out after him. Mugen starts to pile out just in time to see Deacon flash from his hands and three or four people go flying back from a spell of his. Now, this is the first spell that's popped out. That's going to get some attention as well. And some of that combat all around them kind of backs away a little bit. They're like, okay, well, we're over here punching and stabbing and I got a broken bottle I'm shanking this guy with, but that's a little bit outside of the range of my broken bottle. I'm going I'm to I'm hit these guys. You, you guys deal with that. So, Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen have a little bit of a space for just a moment. Deacon and Seraph, what do we do? And Seraph looks around. He sees that more and more people are coming in and out. And just looking up from when he can the streets, it almost looks like the fight is now extending into the burrow. And Seraph's like, we've got to get out of here before this gets worse. And looking around, he sees that there's a set of stairs that are kind of leading to a section of the town that, you know, going up where it's less well-kept. A little bit on the other side of the arena. They couldn't quite see it until they got up closer. And the buildings up there look worse. And there's not as many people coming in and out of that section. And Seraph points, that that's our best way out. Let's go. And so Seraph starts making his way. And Mugen brings the other gullies behind him with Deacon in the rear. And Seraph starts clearing the road. As he's making his way through, he's just cutting and literally sometimes just people are fighting. He's grabbing someone from the back and just tossing him to the side. So you, as you can imagine, you just see some guy go, Hah! he just gets tossed out and then lands in the crowd only to begin fighting some more. Because why is it raining people all of a sudden? I was already fighting this guy. And they're sitting there and, and they reach the bottom stairs and start fighting their way up. And they're making pretty good speed. But they can hear shouts behind them. They can hear people yelling, there they go. Don't let them get away. There's the ones that started. Those are the ones that did it. Again, at this point, Mugen does not have his cloak to hide. He looks like Seraph and Deacon don't, don't have time to mess with that. These guys do stand out, and there's a group of gully dwarves with them. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? So they go running up the stairs, finding that they can, but they know that there's others following them. They fight their way up. They make it to the top of the stairs. Uh, one of the gullies slips at one point, but Mugen manages to grab him before he hits the ground by the front of his shirt, literally pulls him back up with one hand, which you can imagine the gully's like, oh, like Mugen is clearly stronger than the average gully. And it's because and he doesn't look quite like a gully. He looks like a gully, but a little bit different. That's because he's half gnome. So the gully's like, well, you look kind of like a gully, but your hair's really crazy. And you're a little bit skinnier than we are because they are gnomes are thinner than a gully dwarf. So he's got, he's like a halfway in between when it comes to that. But what he loses in the girth that is a gully dwarf is just muscle. Again, the man is cut. Not a spot on his body that's not muscle. But then the gully dwarves and Fig have had to do a lot to survive in New Gully. A lot of work involved with that. And Mugen has been head of basically the patrols that protected New Gully years at this point. So he's a combat specialist. He's the general of their army for all intents and purposes. Although... He doesn't quite put it that way. Fig has never talked in the way of generals and admirals and such. It's, we have our people, we have our army, and we protect our people. That you know, That's pretty much the extent of it. You don't overload gullies, even though Mugen is way more advanced than the average gully. 
They make it to the top, but even in this part of the city, which they can see is clearly a, a poorer part of the red, the fight is already up here. And as far as they can see on the street, people of all colors, I mean by the sashes, not their skin, but the different colors, are fighting. So while it was the red borough, there's always going to be people from other boroughs in there trading, selling, buying. There's lots of people. And if you're up there shopping and all of a sudden you see a bunch of reds cut down some blues, well, I'm blue, and now the greens are fighting down the red, but there's some more, okay, well, guess I'll fight too. I mean, that's just how life works sometimes, especially in this type of a setting where you're the common man in a very poor way of life. And these are the only things you have to hold dear, your family and your and and pride of the group you belong to. So they begin fighting their way through this group. But again, still they're fighting their way through crowds of people and such. And they can still hear shouts. They're still being followed. They go to go up one main street. And one of the gals stop. And he, start, he pulls on Mugen. And Mugen's like, what? He goes, this way. Save for this way. And he points up a small alley. Seraph sees Seraph and them look at him. They nod. They take the man's advice. The gullies know more about this city than they do. And if there's any race here that knows how to survive, it's the gullies. So they're like, okay, follow them. The gullies start running up this alleyway with Mugen, Seraph, and Deacon close behind them. They get to the end, and you, the, the alley smells. It's trash and awful. Probably a corpse sitting over there. That poor dead person. Vagrant that's just been laying there for a while in the summer heat. Hello, Jim. Oh, you caught up real quick. Well, you have to go back and listen to it. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Please let me know. Message me when you can. Um, it comes running up the, the alleyway, and they get to the end, and the smell is getting worse. And as they do, they can see there's runoff coming between the buildings and very shallow-looking almost ditches and rainways where the waters are going down. And there's a grate there where the water's going down into, into a sewer. It's a very old city. They've probably got a pretty expansive sewer at this point. And they arrive, they can see that one of the bars is missing. And without even stopping, or considering what he's doing, one of the gullies just slides on his butt right through the filth and sewage that's running down there, and whoop, right through the hole between the bars. The other gullies arrive and start making their way in too. And they, the others stop, and they can hear there's still people, they can see it just back. People are coming up the alley after them. And Mugen looks, and they look at each other, and there's no way that Seraph or Deacon can fit down this hole. Seraph gets down and begins to try to pull on one of the bars. But even though it's old, it's very well made. Welded in there tight, and it's strong. And even though he can feel it wiggling a bit, it's going to take too long for him to try to pry and work this out. Deacon begins you know, fishing his head for a spell that might help, but they don't have time. And they hear and can hear the fighting spreading towards them and people yelling there they are they're down that alley and they start coming towards them deacon grabs mugen and pushes him towards the grate go get in there mugen looks at him like i'm not gonna leave you like what do you want crack i'm not gonna leave you sarah puts his hand on his shoulder and said your people are still in danger have to get them to safety that's your responsibility now we will find you Soon as you can, try to make your way back to the inn. We'll meet you there. Go ahead, but go get get your make, get make, get your people safe. Mugen's torn, of course, but he understands his two friends. Let's be honest. Even Mugen is smart enough to know that there are situations 
where Mugen probably causes them to be slower, right? Mugen rides on the back of a horse with Deacon because Mugen doesn't know how to ride a horse. Really too small to, to deal with it. Fig had had years of training, and even he struggled with riding a horse, which back in the day, for the record, is something Fig had to deal with when riding horses. He always had negatives when trying to ride a horse if it was anything more than just a regular ride. If he's trying to chase after something, I can't tell you how many times the party had to stop because Fig fell off the horse. Not meant for that. But, I mean, he knows Seraph's ability to climb walls. Lord knows he's seen it. Deacon's magic... He's like, okay, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get out of the way. I'm gonna help my people. I meet you at, I meet you at the inn. Sarah shakes his little hand and he can clap him on the shoulder and with a, a brief smile, he looks down. He can see the eyes of the gullies down in the darkness. Mugen hops down on his knees and backs in and slides into the hole as well. Deacon and Seraph look at each other and can't help but to smile because in this moment they know, regardless of what else happens, at least Mugen is very likely safe. And their expectation of his capabilities has shot through the roof in the last 15 minutes. They knew he could fight. They'd seen him fight. But what he did back there with Jarek was beyond any... That was their level, if not better than some of the people they, they might have brought with them. Ran would have been hard put in some of these situations. I mean, if they were to sit there and say, Ran's a very good fighter... But, you know, putting him against Mugen, I, I say it's a 50-50 shot, and that's not easy to do. Mugen genuinely has the chance of getting his people to safety. But what I talked about a moment ago is also true. Now they have a little bit more freedom to move at their speed. Seraph grabs Deacon and starts to pull him behind him, and they quickly start to rush up. I mentioned I said between those buildings were those thin runways. And he grabs them, they start to go sideways and make their way up through the filth that's rushing around their ankles and stuff, and the rainwater and such. There's always some rainwater. That's just how these stories work. Don't judge me. And he starts working, working their way up until they finally push through, pull through another seat. And they can hear yelling coming from the alley below as people have reached the bottom. And they can only hope, because they're making some noise on purpose, that they'll follow them and not worry about the great. Right? Not that many of them could, any of the people falling could probably fit down there anyways. But as they get to the city street, once again they're pulled into battle. And like a wildfire, half the city at this point is up in arms and fighting. And it's not just the city now. The city guard has come out. The city guard is going through trying to quell and stop this. And unfortunately, in one of the only ways they know how to do that, they're coming along well-armed and armored, and they're just thumping the skulls of everyone in front of them, trying to scare people into stopping. Sarah and Deacon are on the street and immediately pulled into battle and having to fight again. And there are points and yells from some people. There they are! There's two of them right there, the white-haired one! And like many times in his life, Sarah's like, God, I hate my white hair! You gotta imagine that. It's like, ah, like you probably wanted to die at some point. But yeah, it's just not how he rolls. But it's one of those things where like, ah, I stand out in a crowd. And they start fighting their way through. And they're doing that. They're literally trying to fight their way through. Now these are people these are people they don't know, right? What they were doing back there was protecting them, but now they're fighting through a crowd of people they don't know who don't many of them probably don't even know who they are at this point. It's just an open brawl. So they're pulling their punches some. They're not trying to kill people, but they'll pick them up, throw them, push them out of the way, thump a skull if they need to. They're trying to get through, but that I don't want to kill strangers for no reason thing, because again, these are good people, Deacon and Sarah, maybe not the people they're fighting. 
They don't want to just slaughter innocent people. Some of these people maybe got pulled into this brawl just like them and don't want to be a part of it, right? Some of these people maybe just be trying, maybe that building over there is their home and they're just trying to protect their family. So this brawl, nobody looters or busts into their house and harms their family and their kids. But they're not trying to just kill everybody, but they are trying to get free, trying to get away from this. You can't just go running up a wall in the middle of daylight. It's too easy. So could feasibly do that. Deacon, if on his back, could ride with him, but he has spells that could help him as well. Spidery climb, what, things of that nature. D&D terms, right? But they're trying to get away to a point where they might be able to hide, or maybe even D could use a spell to hide them. Something they can use within the repertoire of abilities and skills to get away from this. They can't do that in open street. So they find themselves fighting. They're surviving to get away. And they, they're really just picking a direction and going. They don't know where they are. They're in a part of the city they've not been to yet. They've Definitely lost all sort of direction in all this. And the buildings are high and the sky is slightly, is slightly overclouded because I'm a dick like that. So they can't really see the sun in east and west. It's a, you know, if they had time to sit and figure it out, they could, but they don't have time. So they're fighting their way out. So, catch myself up here. There we go. Deacon, Seraph, fight hard. But in a crowd this size, it's only a matter of time before they eventually get separated. They do their best to try to stay close. With all the yelling going on, Seraph, more than any, has a better chance of hearing Deacon. But with everything going on, eventually they get separated and both of them are hit with the same realization. They turn around to look at their friend and they're alone, fighting in the middle of people they don't know and doing their best to... Now, now they're trying to escape, they're trying to find each other. Deacon hears someone yell out, and all he hears is the word, white-haired one. He looks in that direction. Someone's noticed Seraph. They're still being chased. And looking around, he sees, he manages to kind of get to the side. He finally gets up against the building. He has a brief moment. He's out of the direct melee. And you can see other people cowering against the side, trying to stay out of this. And Things are being thrown and buildings being smashed and carts are being broken over and horses are tromping through, hitting people against people trying to escape and such. Some of those horses are being ridden by a city guard and they're tromping people on purpose. Hello, Yeet Lord. All this is going on. Deacon manages to kind of step up a couple small steps and is standing at the entranceway of a building. Now, the building he stepped into is an old building. It looks like the top floor, probably about three stories high. Uh, was some type of old home, and the top floor is already caved in. And the whole place looks like it could go at any minute. No one lives there. They do, it's probably vagrants. He looks, in, quick look inside, there's no signs of anyone inside, just darkness. And he steps back in just a little bit to try to take a breather and look what he can see. And as he's scanning the crowd, he sees a large group of reds making their way with a large group of city guard. And they're kind of fighting as well and such. But then he sees Seraph. And he sees Reds and City Guard moving towards Seraph. He can't tell if Seraph knows they're coming. Smack out in the middle of the damn plaza that they're kind of in right now. And Deacon's like, I gotta figure, I gotta find something to do. Right? Can't charge in there. 100 people between me and them. I'm never fighting by the time I get in there. How good is that gonna be? I've gotta do something to help him. And so Deacon falls back to what else he knows best. His magic. Deacon begins racing through his mind for spells. He starts going through his 
mental spell book. I can do this, I can do this. How can I use this? How can I do this? And he settles on the spell Burning Hand, which is a spell that basically puts your hands up in front of you, kind of like in a V or cone shape, and it puts out a cone of fire. Now, his goal is not to target at the people in front of him. And he doesn't know these people. He's no reason to harm them. But what his thought is, if he could burst the flame right over their heads, enough to startle them and scare people, maybe break up the people closest to him so they break up, right? That breaks up. Then maybe Seraph can get to him. And a big gust of flame shot in the air, that's going to get Seraph's attention. Hell, he'll smell the fire. It's as good he is at smelling stuff. And if he can get Seraph's attention, Seraph might be able to use speed strength, now that he knows where Deacon is, to get to him. That's his thought. I'm going to cast Burning Hands. I'm going to cast this just above the heads of people to hopefully frighten them back, get Seraph's attention so he can get to me. And Deacon begins casting the spell. Now, as he's casting, he's concentrating on the spell. You have to. You're a mage. Concentrating on the spell is paramount. Your concentration getting broken can have detrimental effect. And he's focusing, but while he's doing this, he's still watching. He's seeing what's going on. Because if things change, he may have to repoint himself. He has to focus it in the right way. He's ready to make that move based on how situation may change because it's ebbing and flowing in, in every second. He's preparing and he's casting that spell, which doesn't take long to cast. But in some ways, it might seem like an eternity. Because as he's casting the spell, city guards and reds finally overtake Sarah. And the spell is almost cast. He's almost ready. When he sees... I'm just going to describe the weapon so you know what I'm talking about. Short club, metal-tipped end, probably barbs. Not a ball, but uh, imagine like uh, kind of like an ear of corn end of a stick, except it's metal and it's got little bumps on it. Spikes. It's not used for killing as much. It's a blunt weapon. So he sees one crack across the top of Seraph's head and Seraph disappears into the, into the mess of them and he just sees hands coming down where Seraph was. Deacon is a very good warrior and he's a very good mage. Still young. And they've been doing this for a little while now. Not still super battle trained. And in that moment, when he sees Seraph fall, his heart lurches. Brief moment. He loses. For a mage, you have multiple effects. The spell could fail. The spell could implode. Could do something more. Could harm him instead. That's what happens when you're a regular mage. Deacon. Deacon's a little different. Within Deacon is a wall. He was, his whole life he's been trained how to build. A wall, a dam, if you will. That's meant to hold back something inside of him. That is always fighting to be free. Every moment of every day. He is constantly adding to that wall. Finding ways to build it. And to hold back the wild magic that wants to surge through him. He's a wild mage, born with the ability to tap into wild magic, which is an incorporeal magical force that's like all magic that exists around everything. No, there's no midichlorians. Don't even try that. <laughs> but it is 
all around us. It's not in a physical form. And wild magic, almost like it's alive, wants to be that. Whenever he's casting a spell, he has to wall that off. He has to keep that wild magic from interfering, because if the wild magic does, there's the chance that the spell could have untold effects. Or worse, there could be a full wild magic surge, of which wild magic surge effects can be devastating, depending on the power level of the mage. And while Deacon is a good mage, the young and inexperienced mage, has an incredibly strong natural talent, wild magic, even more so than Petal, who is higher than normal. It's been very common in his whole life. Wow, we've never seen anyone with power, a link to wild magic like you do. And of course, nothing scares his father more than hearing that. Because that same type of power ran through his uncle, Nylat Flare, was the corrupting force that led Nylat down the path it is, and is the whole reason Merge World exists. For just a moment, his heart lurches. And the very tiniest of crack appears. That's all the wild magic. Within him, the wall cracks and the wild magic flows through. And the spell casts. But not as intended. Instead of a six to eight foot arc of flame going out in a kind of cone in front of him, the flame comes out in a spiral that just gets bigger and bigger and continues to grow, burning with a heat far beyond the spell's capabilities. And Deacon can't stop it. He can feel the wild magic just rushing, using him as a conduit, taking the spell and twisting it into its own wild and a full surge erupts and it just grows and gets bigger and this flaming circle starts to move forward and starts to erupt into not only the air people buildings and this cone just continues to grow at this point it's 10 foot wide at its end and it's still go wait we are behind burning hands part yes he's casting burning hands but while for those of you who might have missed it he's casting burning hands while he's casting the spell, Seraph was clubbed and falls to the ground in the crowd, and it makes him lose concentration, which is causes a wild magic surge. Because he's a wild mage, and we've all talked about wild magic. If you're not sure about wild magic, let me know. I'll go into a little more detail in a moment. A wild surge happens, and when a wild surge happens with a wild mage, the spell's effects can be changed. Fireball could turn into a thousand butterflies. summoning a cup of water, and summon a meteor. It's insane what can happen from a wild magic surge. And the level of the surge depends on two things. Natural power of the mage who can tap into that wild magic, and the level of the spell he's trying to cast. Burning hands, for all intents and purposes, it's a first level wizard spell. So as I'm describing this, I want you to imagine that. This rings of flame. It's rings, much like a spring. It's just going and bigger and bigger and bigger and getting wider and people are screaming and jumping out of the way, the ones that aren't being lit of flame, and he can't stop the spell. Imagine if that spell had been a third, seventh level. Imagine what a spell of that power 
might have turned into the full magic of the Wild Serpent. At this point, for all intents and purposes, he feels like a faucet, right? A buildup of wild magic behind him, and it just wants to pour through this faucet, like cranking a faucet, and the water comes out. And he's trying to stop it. He's had to forget what's going on in the crowd. He has to forget what's going on with Seraph. At this point, people are being hurt, and he has to stop the spell. And he's trying, there he can, to sever that link, to patch that wall using everything he can. At this point, he's not casting a spell. His body's just being used by the spell. He's not even moving. All of this battle's being taken place inside in his mind. And he's fighting to rebuild and patch that wall. And it takes a moment. But he's able to do so. He's able to shore that back up. He's used his training. He regains control. And he stops it from coming. But I, I want you to imagine that the wild magic comes into him. Then it comes out. He is still riddled. He's literally glowing. The amount of wild magic, that, like a sponge, his body is soaked up. That while he stopped that, it's still feeding this spell. The amount of magic there it could go on for a while. And he can see the people. And now everyone's running. Can't even see Seraph. The smoke is starting to billow up. It's just the heat of it's even affecting him. And so the only thing he can think to do is to protect those people never meant to harm. Is instead to focus the spell inward instead of outward. And it takes everything he's got. Uses all of his training. But he starts to rein the spell and, for all intents and purposes, shut it off. Almost like sever it. And when he does that, the flames almost instantaneously dwindle out. Well, the damage is already done. Literally, it burned the stone of the street. And there's just a, an arch out, people burning and screaming, and so on and so forth. But when he severs that, magic still has to go somewhere. And a wild magic explosion just erupts from him. Like a bomb going off. From the audience to the crowd who are in fear looking. They don't know what it is. There's a doorway with flame coming out of it. They don't know who it is. These giant arcs of flame. The flame disappears and then suddenly there's an explosion that knocks people backwards. Like a wave, a physical wave of energy washes over them. Literally the plaza. Everyone, horses, people, knocked clean over. Everyone hits the ground with the wave of it. They have no choice. And that explosion blows out walls. And the walls of that building just... Poof. The rest of the building rumbles. And as the ground, and as he feels the building coming down, and he can, first thing strikes him, and he feels pain in his body as the weight hits him, he feels a crumbling beneath as well. And as the weight hits him, he then begins to feel himself falling. You would expect maybe into a cellar or a short stop, but he doesn't hit the ground. He keeps falling and falling further into darker and darker. Till suddenly, he's struck with the weight of the world. Everything. 
to pitch. In the aftermath, the city is still city crazy everywhere else. But this section, at least some some semblance, all that did bring calm down. People were like, whoa, this is bigger than we thought it was going to be. And people are, you know, some are being arrested and some are just hiding and trying to stay out of the way of the city guards. And many of them can see this pale, white-haired elf-looking figure being dragged. Two men have him under the arms. He's clearly unconscious, his hair matted with blood. As they drag him down the street, surrounded by city guards. You can only assume he's being taken to the tower, or the, wherever criminals are taken, right? Don't know who this white-haired man is, but that's a lot of people to surround one guy. Must be a pretty dangerous criminal. But before we end for the day, one more member of this party. Haven't finished. Mugen makes his way through the, through the sewers, following the little gullies that are his guides. Yammering and yammering, asking questions. What do we do? Where are we going? Who are you? Where are your friends? What you? Mugen's doing his best to try to answer. He's like, we need to go somewhere safe. Is there a place we can go where gullies are safe? Because it wasn't long after they had gotten in there and got going that they heard sounds behind them. Somehow, someone has made their way down into the sewers, and they believe that they're being chased. The gullies say, one of the little gullies next to him, his name is Mig, says, yes, they're a place we're safe for gullies, but it's dangerous to get there. It's not safe to travel. If we go there, humans not follow. Too dangerous for humans. They give up. They always give up. Mugen nods and says, okay, then that's, which, that's where we go. Yes, take me there. Take us to a place where you are safe. In his mind, I've got to get you safe and make sure you're good so I can get back to my friends. They might need me. I think we know that they do. As they're traveling the, in these sewers, the water is roaring. They get to a point where water's coming in different directions and it's loud. And the water is just roaring and pouring through tunnels. It's almost enough that Mugen gets a bit dizzy. It's, it's such a loud, continuous noise. Even on the ships and the thunderstorms that they had to go through, because you got to assume they went through one storm. Nothing was quite as loud as this. Or if it was, it was short. This is a nonstop, like one of those dragony things screaming the whole time. He's never seen a dragon, by the way. I want you to point that out. They haven't come across a dragon once with Mugen yet. He's heard about him. He one yet. Yet. But it's loud, and he, can, he can't even hear the guides anymore. They're just pointing and pulling on him to come. And he's like, yes, I'm coming. He's constantly looking back to see if they're followed. It's hard to tell because now there's no sound. And even though it's dark in there, him, like the other gullies with their improvision, they can really see without that. He still has his weapon. He still has most of his gear. There's a few things back at the end. But he has most of his stuff with him. The only thing he really lost was his cloak, which he left behind. But he's got most of his gear and his supplies, so... There's that. And so he's, he's got his money, his monies, which he's still, he's learning, he's learned the value of money. Although it's hard for him to know what to, he knows how much a gold is versus a silver versus a copper versus a platinum and all that type of conversion. But he's still trying to learn, well, how many of these is worth an apple? 
You know, how do I figure that out? Because this guy says it's one of these silvers, but this guy says it's a gold. Like, uh, it's subjective. How do I know which one? You know, that kind of thing. Got his money. He's got his stuff. He's making his way. And they're traveling through a particularly loud section where they're walking and the water's actually quite a bit below, down the side. There's like a very thin area for other people. For them, it's just regular size. But there's a very sharp drop and water's pouring in through large holes down and it's just roaring. Mugen's just like, oh, I got to get away from this noise. And as they're traveling through, something catches his eye. There have been spots they've come to where it seemed like little windows or openings and such that led that they could put, look through and see other tunnels going in other directions, and sometimes they'd come to those. But he sees a flash of light through one. Damn! And he gets up against the wall, against it, trying not to move in front of that little window. Is that the humans that are chasing him? Gullies see him, and not knowing what to do, they go up against the wall too. Like, okay, he's up against the wall. Why are we up against... I don't know why we're up against the wall, but he's up against the wall. He seems to know what he's doing. We'll stay up against the wall, too. Very carefully, Hugin looks up, lifts himself up a little bit, and peers through the very thin window. That high. We're looking at, what, five, six inches? Probably about 14 to 15 inches wide. It's a long, thin slot. And sure enough, he can see into the next room. The room appears to be lower than where they are. So the stone wall, which appears to be very thick between them, uh, relatively thick between them, um, on the other side, it's lower. And it appears that there's some standing water in there, but no running water. And it appears to be almost like a room, a long room. And standing in there is a man holding a torch. Now, Mugen's confused. Not a stupid person. This man's not wearing any of those colors. Why not? He starts looking closer. They don't appear to be searching. The man seems to be looking around. Now, he can't hear the man. The noise is so loud he can't hear anything at all. But he can see. At least he's not worried about making a noise where they'll hear him. Peeking, trying to watch from the corner. And then at the other end, he sees another light coming, and they come th entering into a doorway. Enters a woman. This woman is wearing long robes of a color. Mmm, colored robes. That's those religious people. I met some of those religious people. He met them at multiple temples, as they And Seraph and Deacon had done well to help him learn more about the gods. Even though Fig had taught them all about them, there was no real applications. There's no clerics or clerical magic in New Gully. There's no magic at all. He knew about the gods. He'd learned about them, but associating this colored robes, well, Lady Artemis wears the light blue color. I met Lady Artemis. She's like, you know? But this was a lady dressed in gray. Gray lady, he recognized her. That's that lady from the temple we talked to. The one who said he should help us. And she comes in, and she leans in very close to the man with the torch, speaking in his ear. They, too, sure couldn't hear anything as loud as it is. Had to get up closer. The man nods and makes his way and opens up a doorway on the other side. And nodding to the woman, makes his way through. Woman leans back through and waves like this. Several people begin to make their way through. And a couple of them appear to have robes, much like the, like the religious lady. And then several people come in that 
are regular people dressed, but they're still not wearing any of those special colors that everybody's wearing about. Everybody keeps fighting over. And they come in the room, and she, he sees in the middle of these three people. He's a man, bigger man. It's like a warrior. And he, too, is dressed all in gray. There's a thin, older man, balding on top, dressed in regular clothes. Mugen's heart stops. Because the third one turns and nods to the religious woman. And Mugen sees Dina. She's standing there with her grandfather and her uncle. This religious lady and some more people. And finally the religious lady nods. And Dina and her family start moving through out the other door. Mugen begins to scream her name, yelling it as loud as he can, trying to get her attention, banging. The noise is so loud, no one could hear anything, although for just a second, Dina seems to stop, look around a little bit, almost as if she'd heard something, but then, urged by her uncle, continues out the doorway until the lights, all go, torches all go through, and the room goes dark again. Mugen screams till he can't scream no more. And then finally he gets down and he grabs one of the gullies. He pulls him up close. He goes, I have to get over there. How we get over there? And the gully shakes. He goes, you can't. There, there's no way over there. Got to go all the way around. Take, take really long time. Can't get over there. That exit. That go out city. That drain. Old drain. Can't go out there. That's been closed off for years. I don't know how they got in there. Deacon Hart's crushed. Right there. The entire thing that all of this came from was them looking for that human woman on the other side of a wall. And he missed her. He's leaning against the, the, the wall again. His head back cursing himself in the luck, trying to figure out what he can do until he feels a sharp pull on his arm. He looks at the gully, and the gully points back, and they can see a little bit of torchlight back there as well. Damn it! They're still being chased. Mugen has no choice. He still has to get these gullies to safety. Found her. She's here. He's going to get these guys to safety. Then he's going to find his friend, and he's going to get them back together again. No other choice. Once again, Mugen continues down the watery, runny tunnel, being led by the gullies, hopefully, to a place where they'll be safe so that he can help his friend. And that's where we're going to end for today. Well, that went two full hours. I didn't expect to go the full two hours. So, hopefully, well found today's episode to be entertaining or interesting if you did it would sure be awesome if you considered clicking that like button it does help the the podcast very much enjoyed it a little bit and if you're new here be sure to subscribe yeah, with us um so we're leaving off Deacon falling into darkness seraph unconscious being dragged out by the city guard and mugen 
trying to fix everything. The next episodes of Merge, ooh, Merge Worlds will be two weeks from today, the same time, two Thursdays from now at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we will be picking up directly from where we're leaving off today. No long-term cliffhanger. I promise that once we got to Sarah's side of the story, we'll be staying with him for a few episodes because things are escalating very quickly. Uh, I'm excited to show you all what comes next. But, if you have any questions, thoughts, feedback, uh, please consider leaving a comment in the description area of this uh, stream here on YouTube. If you are listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Music Podcasts, um, you can also go to my website, onlydraven.com, where you can find a multitude of different Merge Worlds resources, uh, like little painted pictures of little painted minis, digitally, of many of the characters, not all of the characters of Merge Worlds at this point. Many of the folks we've spoken about today you'll find on there. If you'd like to know what some of these characters are like, if you'd like to see what the gods look like, uh, or just more information about myself, the website, or Merge Worlds as a whole, a lot of that you can find on my website, OnlyDraven.com. Um, as well, uh, if you uh, have not already, but you'd like to, as I just mentioned, this podcast is available as an audio podcast, completely free, on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music Podcast. Uh, if you have any one of those, and you're the type of person who has iTunes or Spotify, it would be awesome if you'd consider giving us a follow, even if you just watch over here on the video. It would be awesome if you'd consider giving us a follow, giving us the the five stars and the thumbs up and the ratings and such. Um, again, it really helps get the story recommended so more people can learn about it. And if you do like the story, feel free to leave a review because that would be cool too. Uh, so two weeks from now, oh, planning anything after the stream. Not quite sure yet. I got to check on my wife. She wasn't feeling a little well earlier. So I'm going to check on her and then we're going to determine what we're doing tonight based on that. Uh, but I might be on some games and stuff. I see. Nothing else, you'll see me chatting on the Discord, even if I'm working on some off projects. But I'd like to thank you all for coming and hanging out with me today and giving me yet another chance to tell some more of this story. I hope you liked it a little bit. I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, two weeks from now, I will be back again. I'd like to hear more. Come on by and we'll do it. That'll be episode 85. We're only 15 episodes away, right? 15, 16 episodes away from episode 100. I have to plan something extra special for that, aren't I? Hmm. And if you'd like to see any type of uh, supplemental Merge Worlds com uh, content, maybe AMAs about Merge Worlds, uh, whether they be video or audio released, if there's other types of information or ways you'd like to see Merge World presented, please let me know. I'm always looking for more ways to share the world of Merge Worlds with folks and would love to hear any recommendations. Okay? But I'm going to call that a night. Thank you all very much for hanging out with me. I do hope you have yourselves a wonderful evening and a great rest of your week and into the weekend. More than anything else, I really do hope you'll come back and share some more of my story. Okay? Folks, have yourselves a wonderful day. <laughs>